The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where, I mean, I don't even know what to say. I don't want to utter the usual lines about the ways we can't talk, don't talk, yada, 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 because most of us right now are a mess and in mourning. Not just about race relations, but about the future of the country, what just happened, what could happen, and what we will allow to become the new normal or not. Anyway, I'm Anna Holmes, and I'm in Los Angeles for this week, which is, to put it mildly, very surreal. (laughs) Joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are Tanzina Vega. Hi, Tanzina. Hi. Tanner Colby. Hey, Tanner. Hello. Hello, Anna. And in D.C., we have Adam Serwer from The Atlantic. Hi, Adam. Hi. How's it going? Well, yeah, you know how it's going. Yeah, of um, course. Today, I'm not sure where we even start to talk about President-elect Donald Trump, and I really have a hard time even uttering those that phrase without feeling sick to my stomach. So I guess I just want to put out a general question um, to all of you, and someone please jump in. Uh, what just happened? Uh, I actually think it's not entirely clear what just happened. There was obviously a significant backlash. I think a lot of the statistical evidence suggests that it has to do with immigration and a rapidly diversifying America and a significant portion of the country feeling uncomfortable not only with that, but perceiving it as the reason for their economic troubles. But I think it's obviously greater than that. A lot of people who are middle class or upper class voted for Trump as well. And while, as I said, I'd caution against drawing too broad a conclusion too early, I think it's very possible that we're witnessing the birth or rebirth of a new type of white identity politics that I think will be very damaging to the country. What I realized or what what I started to think over the last 24 hours was that part of the reason, you know, people have talked about both Trump and Obama ran as outsiders. And... I think they kind of both ran the same campaign in a lot of ways, which is that Obama offered a blank template called hope and change. And we, yes, we can. And people could project onto that whatever they wanted. White liberals could project some post-racial fantasy. Black people could project empowerment. And one of the nagging problems of Obama's presidency was all these conflicting expectations that some people were let down, some people were let down. And, you know, there was... Uh, in hindsight, was there really a center to the Obama presidency as much as we all loved the guy because it was just like a sort of a general idea of hope and change that we voted for as opposed to something more concrete. And I think the decimation of the Democratic Party in Obama's absence is maybe telling us that there wasn't something underneath. I don't know. It's too soon to say. But at the same time, the flip side of that, the mirror side, is that Trump offered a blank slate of anger and grievance. And it didn't matter who you were angry at, federal government, Hillary Clinton, Jews, Muslims, Mexicans, black people, uppity white elites in in the cities. It didn't matter. Every week it was a smorgasbord of anger and resentment. And whoever you were angry with, you were like, yeah, fuck them. I'll vote for Trump. And, you know, I've seen a lot of, especially in the first 24 hours, a lot of Twitter debates between white women, black women. Was it racism? This was more, this was more about sexism. This is more about racism, which to me is like a, kind of a useless argument to get into because it's it's everything. It's a toxic stew. And we got 60 million people who voted for him. They're all angry for however many different overlapping and interlocking reasons. And that's all I got. I've been reporting, actually just published a piece on what this means uh, at a policy level for people of color. Um, So forgive me if I don't have, you know, talking points um, ready to go today, but it's just sort of a stream of consciousness. But Mm -hmm. I do want to address the economic elephant in the room. I feel like this is something when we're talking about, quote unquote, Trump supporters, and we sort of put them in this box of white working class America and there's all of this, you know, hand wringing over how come, you know, journalists in particular don't know white working class America. How come we don't know the heartland? There's sort of this expectation that we have a certain amount of empathy 
um, for what this supposed populace is going through. So first of all, we've already said um, that it wasn't, Adam, you, you were absolutely right. It wasn't just the white working class that voted for Trump. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the median income were about $70,000, $72,000 a year. So when I look at that argument and I cover race and, and inequality, particularly from an economic standpoint, I look at the wealth gap in America. And I wonder, which is for those who, who haven't um, heard these numbers, um, it, there it's about uh, whites have an average wealth of about 13 times that of blacks and Latinos um, in the United States. So it's about $140,000 for whites, $13,000 for Hispanics, and $11,000 for blacks. And that's wealth. That's everything you own minus the debt that you owe against that. And so that's the average. That's That's what we're working with. And I feel like when we think about the working class, we think about a white man and his overalls going to a factory. And now that factory has moved on and this this community has been devastated by that. And we do not afford the same empathy and or the same narrative to black and brown working class Americans. And when we think about black and brown working class, I don't even know if we call them working class. I think we call them, quote unquote, inner city People, there's a sort of expectation that people of color who are working class did this sort of to themselves. There's more of a of an expectation that there's a an individual problem or a, or a systemic problem with with people who can't just seem to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So I want to know where the bootstraps argument is for this uh, supposed constituency, and how come the narrative, the American narrative, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, isn't necessarily being afforded to the white working class as much as it's expected from the black and brown working class, number one. And number two, why we're not framing the working class as something that affects people of color, as as a group that also includes people of color, whose homes are valued less than white homes that are owned by whites, who are paid less than white people across the board. And we've seen those numbers in the pay gap. And I, and I just think that this economic argument really hides the fact that there, as Adam mentioned, there is a serious, growing and intense white identity politics that at its heart, unfortunately, is based in a lot of racism. And, and as we know, the media has been very um, sort of elusive and stepping, step, tiptoeing, tiptoeing around that word quite a bit. So I, I don't know if that was cohesive or not, but I think well, there, there's well, a I, real issue here. I, I think, I would, I, you know, go ahead. oh no, go ahead, Anna. Well, I mean, I think everyone, again, to the toxic miasma, is it race or class? If it's an average income of $72,000 a year, I can point you to at least a dozen Trump supporters making quarter million dollars a year. So then obviously, you, then you got a dozen Trump supporters making $20,000, $25,000 a year. For them, it could be class anger and resentment. And then you got these guys making $200,000 a year whose lives are fine and have nothing to be angry about, and yet they sit staring at Fox News talking about the fucking federal government all day. And so their motivations are different but intertwined. And Jamal Bowie's written about it. And why all this focus on this white working class, this lost Archie Bunker? A, I think, because that's, just, you know, in media, as you notice, know, narratives emerge. We follow the narrative uh, almost automatically. But also, if I walk into a room and there's a rabid German shepherd, I'm going to try and understand the rabid German shepherd. And so, you know, all these, why are we trying to, the rabid German shepherd needs to decenter themselves. Like, well, no, that's, that, that's the thing that's going to kill us. Wait, you're, you're right going to try and, you're going to try and understand the rabid German shepherd? I mean, I'm going to, resp- luxury- I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to the luxury I'm gonna of under- trying to understand it. If it's rabid, and, I mean, it's, you know, there, there, it's, there's going to be one second before it's before it's on top of you. I, no, so. but I mean, my my point is that the focus on the white working class, the rage of this white working class, mythical or not, is because as we've been staring into the abyss for the last year, they're the people who were going to toss us over, or so we thought. It turned out to be a lot more people who threw us over. But that's the narrative this year: black and brown working class people weren't threatening anybody they weren't threatening to throw anyone off a cliff this year they were so however like, uh, the subject of a months-long scapegoating campaign for the nation's problems and we we saw yes we saw very little coverage of their feelings about that in fact it was right before the election when i saw one of the first pieces that i'd seen that had given the kind of deep exploration that we saw of white voters in trump land to a latina hotel worker at Trump's hotel who's part of a union. Obviously, the fact that Nevada resisted Trump has a lot to do with demographics, but it also has to do with union politics. This question of like the rabid German shepherd 
the press went out of its way to understand the feelings of people who were voting for Trump. It did not go out of its way to understand the feelings of the people who were being scapegoated by Trump. And I think that's a fair critique. It is. I agree. It absolutely I agree. Is and, and I think and I think that that's that's part of the, the question that I was attempting to ask earlier, which was when are those issues and that empathy going to be extended to communities of color who are suffering and who, in other words, when do communities of color get to act out class rage? Never. Um, in, never. Uh, right. I mean, yeah. Well, that's the thing, but that's exactly <laughs> never the do. thing, right? And, 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 and the data points to, I mean, like, I did a story on the black 1%. You want to know how many blacks are in the 1%? Less than 2% of the 1% are black. And of those folks, let's find, I really tried to find people who were not in entertainment or in sports, you know, who had worked in other industries and, and made their money that way. So money is a big part of this, but the same type of class rage and economic justice is also a big part of Black Lives Matter agenda. It's become an increasingly large part of the agenda for black lives. Um, and that's something, again, that, that we've, I've written about. And, um, and I just feel like that continues to get lost in this conversation. It continues to get lost in the, in the coded politics of dog whistle politics of inner cities, of crime, of walking out of your house and getting shot. I mean, I grew up in the projects. I've never been shot. Shockingly. I, I know. I, I want That's hard to believe. <laughs> Tanner, you made a comment where you were kind of equating an emptiness an, or essential emptiness between what Obama was offering in 2008 and what Trump was offering this year. Now, I was not covering, I've never covered an election. I've certainly edited pieces that had to do with politics, but I've never covered an election. And so the reason this is directed at Adam is because he did and has, and he covered that one. That analogy made me really uncomfortable, Tanner, because I, I don't think that there's any way to equate Obama's 2008 campaign with Trump's, even if you think that it was it was mostly sloganeering and that, that then people project. No, I'm talking about as a marketing piece. OK, you know, but, the, but the, of course, Obama but, had substance. Obama had, you know, white papers and he had, you know, ideas and philosophy. I'm talking about as a marketing piece. OK, Obama but even, as a, mar- gave you even the, as a marketing piece, he had a he had a, an essential humanity and a personality. Oh, that, sure. That, 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 that they're Donald they're mirrored. They're not, not the same. They're not the same. They're the inverse of each other. Obama offered humanity and goodness and hope, but he did it in a very, again, from the marketing point of view, in a very general way that could be as inclusive and as broad as possible so that a white liberal and a black radical could see the same thing in it. What Trump has done on the flip side of that, as an anger, as an angry grievance person, he has offered something to where an upper middle class white guy who just hates women and think that women are taking over can latch on to the same sense of grievance as some nutball anti-Semite in the fringe group and the same grievance as a white working class guy who actually has been fucked by globalization and has legitimate complaints. Uh, uh, They could all triangulate their anger on the same general vagueness of we're going to make America great again and fuck those guys. I I honestly do think there is something to this idea of Trump as a bizarro Obama. And I say that in the sense that Obama and Trump both ran sort of economic populist campaigns against a quote-unquote elites, the, the elites are different, right? And that obviously shapes the campaign very differently. You didn't see Obama scapegoating ethnic groups. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Part of, you know, uh, even though he discouraged white people from trying to purchase, as he put it, purchase racial reconciliation on the cheap by voting for him, um, the truth was that, you know, his entire rocket to fame was we're not a red states of America or a blue states of America. His argument was a pluralist argument. Trump's argument in some superficial ways is not that different in the sense that he's saying these rich people are screwing you and that's the reason why your lives are hard. What Trump then does is he says, but it's not just those people. It's the black people who want to steal, who who, who want to shoot you. It's the Latinos who want to take your jobs. It's the Muslims who want to blow themselves up in your coffee shops and bars or whatever. That is obviously substantially different and far more frightening than anything. There's no similarity between the pitch related to American identity that Obama made and the one that Trump made. Obama made a a pitch about American identity that was inclusive, polyglot, multiracial. Trump is saying white people are real Americans and our lives are under siege by these people who are different. There is something to the idea that, that at their core, they were talking about getting rid of this supposed corruption that is the reason why your life is horrible. 
I mean, there's there's a fundamental similarity in that. I don't think that that means that the the campaigns are morally equivalent. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Of course they aren't. That Adam, was my what, point. Adam, you you talked a, a little bit about the 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 rise of a, of a white identity politics as reflected in this election and, and a number of other things. And I want to know if you can tell me what that looks like in actuality. I mean, six months from now, 12 months from now, and, you know, I know that you don't have a crystal ball, but can you can you elaborate a little bit about what that what shape that might take? I mean, I think that has real concrete consequences. A man who ran a campaign on promises to use state force against people of color and religious minorities, a ban on Muslim immigration, forced deportation of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Latinos, quote unquote, national stop and frisk in black neighborhoods. This is a man that is now in charge of the entire federal infrastructure for enforcing anti-discrimination law. Is this an administration that's going to protect women whose bosses tell them that they can have a promotion if they agree to have sex with them? Is this an administration that's going to protect a, a Muslim woman at her job who gets told that she is not allowed to wear a hijab anymore? Is this an administration that's going to protect the voting rights of black Americans? Is this, you know, an administration that's going to make sure that people of color in their jobs who face racism from their bosses and get fired are are not discriminated? I mean, there's just, it's, the list is endless. And the power that they have over this now is entirely unchecked because there are no Democrats in Congress. There are not enough Democrats in Congress to make a difference. Beyond this question of like, who said something mean or something racist or whatever, this man now has responsibility for enforcing all these laws that are designed to make sure that people aren't discriminated against on the basis of race, religion, or gender. And I think it's also, I agree 100% on the policy side, Adam. I think there's also, we have to look at this at the more implicit subconscious level as well. I think there's a sense that, I know I felt it and I wondered, did this just take away, because as we know, racism and sexism and all of these isms are are overt and they can be obvious and they can also be very subtle. And not just is it going to be illegal for your, you know, boss or will you have the enforcement if your boss, you know, harasses you, but also did this just give license implicitly to whites in this case or people who want to commit you know, those types of offenses to do that? And did this just implicitly take away power and a certain sense of safety for women and people of color and, and other people who feel maligned by by this politics. Don't you think the answer is yes? I mean, maybe maybe one of you can talk a little bit about what's been happening over the past couple of days um, and reports that have been coming in and, and shared on social media about explosions of hate speech and violence directed at at people of color and ethnic and religious minorities and women. And I've had people t- calling me in tears, men, women. Um, I've had people reach out to me just to say, how are you? Are you okay? I've had the first day after I had uh, a colleague um, just come up to me and, and, and just hug me. She is also a person of color. Um, I think she's talking more about the hate incidences we've seen. Right. And I think, I think those, those, are, those are part of the reason why there's this fear. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this discomfort, there's this sadness, there's this concern. I think it's less about a Republican in office than it's more about what all this means. And this is a very emotional time for people because there are these fears. And I don't think it's just the explicit part of this. I mean, look, I'm a woman of color. I'm a journalist. Right. I'm all the things that I'm a Latina. I Some people think I'm Muslim. Right. By the way, I look like this. This puts me and I think a lot of other people in a really difficult position. Not Maybe it's not racism. Maybe it's the fact that as a journalist, our media credentials are going to be stripped away or we're not going to be able to do the job that we need to do or we'll get sued or we'll get blacklisted or some. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many levels to this right now that I think a lot of people are just really raw. And whether we're in the media or not in the media, there's a rawness to what everyone's feeling right now that's, that's just palpable. You know, a lot of these incidents that we've seen have been on college campuses or in schools And I think I don't want to read too much into that. People of that age can be incredibly cruel and can maybe not necessarily understand the implications of what they're doing. These incidents are terrible, but I think the bigger picture is that a man who ran on those sentiments 
is now in control of the entire apparatus of the federal government. And what does that mean for those of us who are black, who are Hispanic, who are Muslim, you know, and in some cases who are of any religious minority, who are Sikh. These like incidents that are, you know, obviously horrifying. It's not just random instances of violence that we should be worried about. We should be worried about racism being given the officialdom of the state. There's a great documentary that came out uh, a year or so ago called Welcome to Leith. It's basically this small town in North Dakota, population 24, where this rabid white nationalist who at the time the documentary was made, was considered a fringe crazy person, decided they could move, white nationalists could move en masse to this town in North Dakota and become a democratic majority and control it. And the people who lived there, the other 24, obviously very conservative, religious, small town, North Dakota people were horrified because Nazis were going to come and take over their town. And you saw very clearly that when the racism bubbled to the surface and became overt and became hostile and became vile. It's decision time, right? Are you a decent person who can start to grapple with, with white supremacy and racism in the history of this country? Or do you succumb to it? And of course the entire town is one black dude in the town. You know, they rose up and they, they got these people out of town. And so what you're seeing now as horrific as it is, is my theory I've settled for a long time and this ex has accelerated it, but not in the way that I thought, is that whiteness is breaking in two, which is that there are people who cling to the white race and the white identity and white culture, and they, they believe all that sh horse shit about Teutonic breeding and Celtic this and, and Alpine, Nordic, blah, 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 and they've bought into the myth of white supremacy and they think it's dying, and they're going to cling to it with everything. They're going to go down with the ship. And then you have, on the other side, you have white people like me, who, everybody come on in. Yeah, I'm white. I still have all the advantages of being white. We can grapple with what all that and what it means. But like, I'm an upper middle class white person in America who recognizes that the integration of people of color into that same life that, that I enjoy costs me nothing. As long as I'm happy and willing to go along with it, it doesn't diminish me. It only enriches the country and gives opportunity to other people. In fact, there's so few white people who deal constructively in this area. I've had many opportunities come to me by virtue of being one of the few guys who does it. And so it's only improved my life. I actually laugh at this whole argument from people of color that we have to dismantle the system of white privilege in this country because the more I've engaged with people of color, the more advantages and privileges I've had accrue to me as a white person in this country. And so what I thought was going to happen with this election was that split was going to come. Donald Trump was forcing that split. And there's going to be like these townspeople in North Dakota. You have to decide what side of the line you're on. And my faith in America was that I thought that 50.1% of the country would decide to be on the right side. And 50.1% of the country did. did decide. Only 20% of the country has voted for this man. Let's be clear about that. As pessimistic as we want to be about white Americans today and, and a white backlash... In every good horror Wait, movie, are you saying twenty percent of, of of the voting uh, of the of people twenty five percent of age twenty five percent of registered voters voted for him, which only represents roughly twenty percent of the actual country, mm -hmm. and they're all old. I mean, if you saw that map of how millennials voted, it was almost solid blue. If you're in a horror movie and they throw the monster over the cliff, and then they look over the cliff to make sure the monster's dead, and then the hand comes back one last time and grabs them, this is the hand. We were at the precipice where we thought we were going to throw the monster over the cliff, and the hand came back up and got us. Um, and I, I just, I just want to say that I completely disagree with everything okay. Tanner has just said. <laughs> First of all, I don't think there are two categories of white people in America: progressives and racists. I think that the vast majority—I don't majority, think progressives are not racist. I didn't, I didn't say progressives weren't racist. Well, I mean, just in general, I don't think that it's a binary thing. I think that I spent a lot of time talking to dozens and dozens of Trump voters in Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in North Carolina. These people do not consider Trump racist. They don't consider the things that he says racist. If you ask them about the things that he said, they will say, the media blows it out of proportion. I genuinely think he loves everybody. He wasn't talking about all Hispanics or Mexicans. He was just talking about some of them. And obviously, you know, people of any group can be bad. It would be a different conversation if Trump voters viewed Trump the way that a lot of 
people on the left view Trump, which is like someone who is running on explicit white nationalist themes, they are in a state of complete denial as to the implications of what Trump said. And that denial is very important because it allows them to vote for him with a clear conscience. Um, right. They, they, they are in the state of denial. Or, but or, the people, or maybe it's just bullshit, the, they, the denial. I, I don't I The don't people think in denial can be in the same camp as the explicit white nationalists. They, they don't have to be consciously be doing it to know it. But then you do have a very clear divide between that group, the people who are actively racist and the people who are so far in denial that they'll go along with the active racist for other reasons that they imagine I mean, for themselves. I mean, I don't... But then you have people who are, are who legitimately look at this and go, that's horrible and that's not who I am. And I'm not... I'm not going with that. I just don't think there's a before portal. up in, up until in this country. Tanner, just let Adam finish. Yeah, there's, there's not like a portal yeah. that you pass through. Like the fact is, is that there are people who who do not think of themselves as racist, who do not think of Trump as racist. And while that may seem baffling, it's important to understand that that mechanism of denial is extremely important for them in being able to support Trump. The problem is not that masses of white Americans are clinging to some explicit ideology of white supremacy. What they are is they are telling themselves that when Trump says things like Mexicans are rapists, that they can not take that literally. They can internalize it and they can say he didn't mean it that way. And then they can go on to support him anyway. Like that is a very different, much more complicated process than what you're talking about, which is like white supremacists in in the Pacific Northwest trying no, no, to create. No, no. It. I, we, we agree. We agree. <laughs> I just I didn't I didn't articulate it properly. I agree exactly with what you're saying. I don't know if it's denial or just apologists. I mean, I, I think that that that's what happens a lot more when it comes to that. Well, that's not what they really meant to say. Right. I think this is this is people making excuses for a candidate that they might feel or they obviously do feel comfortable with electing. I, I don't think it's that much of that we're talking about people who just are on absolute denial. Um, and I think that's what makes it somewhat complicated and, and sinister. I mean, you, you have and what's I, what I find interesting is that when I have brought this up, when I've been talking about this to people this week, including a doctor I saw yesterday for a, a like a broken ankle, right? Like I'm talking and he says, well, how come bringing up the percentage of blacks and Latinos that voted for Trump? Right. And that seems to be what everybody wants to talk to me about. Right. No one wants to talk about the, the white voters that voted for Trump. They Everyone wants to talk about blacks and Latinos and, and looking to me for this like really complex answer in that. And I think, you know, first of all, to that point, I'll say, and I, I tweeted this the other day, anyone who has not covered the Latino community, I'm very wary of hearing explanations of what happened. Latinos are diverse racially. There is a lot of racism within the Latino community to expect that Latinos are all going to line up front and center to vote, you know, in a de- as a Democratic bloc is, I think, is completely off. There's deep strains of conservatism within the Latino community in certain certain communities. And we all have we're all from different countries. We all have different immigration statuses. Immigration may not even matter to a large percentage of voters who happen to be Latino. So this whole idea that, oh, my God, there's so much. First of all, we were first we were saving the country. Right. That was the narrative early in the week. Oh, the Latinos are saving the country there. You know, wouldn't it be great if they just they were the ones that took took Trump down, you know. And then when I forget what the percentage was of Latinos who voted for them, it was like it was almost like they, they were traitors, you know, to and they couldn't have their own sort of ideology. And this was shocking, you know, that that Latinos would actually line up and vote for Trump. And the flip side to that is that, you know, we also don't talk about the misogyny within communities of color. We don't talk about all of these layers, you know, that that could have. And the fact that some of these voters may have felt that um, the Democratic Party did take them for granted. And so they did want to support this candidate. But to me, the percentage of black and brown voters that supported Trump was not the thing I don't think that tipped the scales. Well, that's true. White men, white people, white men in particular, white women white also women. in particular. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know why I drew a distinction. I think there's a substantial, Ar- I mean, the, uh, Ar- there's an argument that would really tip the scales was the number of Democrats who stayed home. Right. Yeah. That's right. That No, that's definitely true. But, like, it's true that white people are to blame for this, but they're to blame for this in the same way that the supervillain in the James Bond movie is to blame for going after James Bond. It's what we should have expected of them. I think that totally removes agency. Vote. It doesn't remove agency. Goldfinger has agency. 
We know Goldfinger. No, he's, 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 he's a supervillain. A supervillain exists as a device for the hero. White people do not exist as a device for a white nationalist candidate to run a campaign and win. Like that, that, that's, that's he, a choice that's that Trump they did, made, though. Right, but I'm saying like white people, white, white people have agency. The white voters made a choice to support this candidate despite all the things he said about people of color or in some cases because of it. I don't think it's it's fair to describe them as like as like the supervillain or the monster coming off the cliff because that removes entirely their agency. They're just robots acting out, you know, structural, you know, their structural place in society. I don't think that's the case. They're a damaged animal that's wounded and confused. You got some wild metaphors. Tanner, I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think of them as... Well, as... I'm a writer. I, that's how I think of things. They, they don't understand what's happening. You know, everyone talks about white privilege. I Nobody think they talks understand about it. The damage yeah. that, that happens to you by being white in this country. Like the mental... The, this is, how, this how, is... how to go through life with that much ignorance and guilt and fear. It's scary. Okay, it's scary I, to be a white I have person to tell you, understand what's happening I have to country. tell you, the Trump voters I talked to, <laughs> they were extraordinarily proud of their support for Trump. They believed that he was someone who was going to go and get rid of the corruption in Washington, D.C., despite being massively corrupt himself. You know, there's a lot of things that that went through my mind while I was talking to them, but I did not think of them as somehow broken or damaged people. Or not in control. Of or not own. in control of of, right. of of their actions. Right. I, I, I think. I well, think, on a conscious level, of course they're aware of their actions. On, on a conscious no, maybe, level, of course no, they're making they're decisions. Well, yeah, they're making decisions, but like, but I think I, I think it's excusing. I think it's excusing. Guy, guy, I've been behavior. white for forty one years. Trust me, I got that, a handle that, on it. <laughs> I, I I know. That's fine, but, that, I but know, you're not a you're not I a know, white Trump voter. <laughs> I mean, just no, because, but I, I'm related. I'm related to many of them. I'm I'm telling you the thought process of what it's like to be white from a white person's point of view. Take it or leave it. Okay, but okay. I, I, I I mean I I do not think that all white people feel the same about being white is what I'm saying. Um No, of course they don't. And the issue here if we're asking why were people willing to do this despite and I think the question that a lot of people of color are asking is like why did they do this when they knew what this man thought of us? And uh, the answer is that they, and my answer is just from talking to a lot of them is that they are entirely in denial about what he'd do and what he said he'd do. And that's what allowed them to cast a ballot despite all the horrible things he said. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, or, and I don't, and, and I'm, also, and I, and I'm that, not that saying. That narrative is also happening in the media, though. We're even having this conversation about is President Trump going to be different than candidate Trump? <laughs> I'm like, are we serious? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's insane. This conversation. I, and, I, yeah. I agree. I think it's nuts. And I also it think, you know, I've, I've watched, uh, I, I'm slowly watching. I think one of the more disturbing things to watch is like you slowly see, you know, media objectivity is not like a solid rule. It's a carefully calibrated thing that is based on public opinion. And now that Trump has won, you can see a lot of reporters for quote unquote objective news outlets very much speaking out online in a way that lets people know that they're aligned with who the new power is in the United States. There was a New York Times editor today who tweeted that he didn't think Keith Ellison, he wondered why the DNC would choose Keith Ellison, a a black Muslim from Minnesota as DNC chair instead of a Rust Belt populist. And it's like, you know, Keith Ellison literally is that he is a populist from from the Rust Belt, but he is also black and Muslim. So, and, and this guy was essentially saying, well, "Why didn't they give a job to a white guy?" And you know, who said that's, that? Who was it? Who I, was it? I'm, I'm not going to. I think it matters less who it was matters less than the issue that a reporter who considers themselves objective, who is supposedly not governed by bias, is like obviously reflecting what he believes to be public sentiment in an, in an era where. Donald Trump is president of the United States. And I think we're going to see that a lot. We're going to see an entire cultural zeitgeist shift away from, you know, what it was during the Obama era and more towards a culture where the presumed soul of America is considered to be what people think the median Trump voter is. It's largely also because we in media in particular, the there's the assumption that white reporters are always objective or are able to be objective, particularly when it comes to covering topics like race and identity. And the flip side is, and I always get asked this question whenever I'm interviewed, you know, about this covering this beat, race and inequality is, you know, as a woman of color, are you able to remain objective? 
And right. I just am always like, I've written about Asian Americans. I'm not Asian. I've written about, you know, different communities. And yes, I, I, I think I am. But there's always this sort of suspicion that we're not able to do that, that our identity and our politics is going to influence, you know, how we cover this. But that's not, again, that's not the same expectation that white reporters, I think, are. It's not the same way that white reporters, I think, are treated largely. It's this expectation that, of course, you'll be objective, right? You you can see things um, and not have any political, you know, especially from in, in mainstream media organizations. Well, it's also a form of advertisement. Um, you know, they, they obviously, obviously, there are a lot of a lot more people who like Trump than they thought, and they want to communicate to those people that they understand them. They feel their pain. And so the way that they're going to do that is the typical way to do that, which is to express contempt for people who are different. And what's interesting is how much that reflects their perception of who Trump's base is, despite not willing to say so explicitly. So this is the normalization of Trump that's happening. Well, it was mm-hmm. happening before he was elected, but it certainly seems to be happening this week. And, and I think what, Adam, you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but I think that's what, what you're arguing, at least with regards to the, the New York Times editor who, who made that comment on Twitter. Are you seeing other evidence of the yes. hasty acceptance of his? Yes. There's a, an editor at the Washington Post who tweeted that the most maddening thing in the world to him was when people say that Trump voters are racist. And I'm like, Wow. Wow. That's the most maddening the most thing. Maddening I mean, thing. Yes. you know, I'm you know, I'm not Joe Sixpack. I've had more difficulties in my life than that. But, you know, th- this normalization of Trump, I mean, look, we've seen this before. There was until 2006, every like major media figure uh, on television was trying to show everybody that they were a real American from the heartland who like supported President Bush and like they didn't care about these dumb hippies who didn't support the Iraq war and, you know, these coastal elitists really need to get out and learn what real Americans are like. And look, we're going to see that all over again. That is all happening. It's already beginning and we're going to see it again. And the only thing that's going to change it is the perception that those people no longer constitute a majority. Just like it changed when President Bush's approval ratings dipped and never recovered around 2006, we're you know, the only way that that sort of attempt to align oneself with what one perceives to be the median voter in the country, that's only going to change when they see public opinion of Trump changing. But is there a way to com- combat this somehow, Adam? I mean, look. I guess that's a question directed at, all, at everyone, but Adam first. I was, I was not a reporter during the Bush administration for very long. I started writing professionally in 2008, but I was absolutely shaped by the way that I saw the press act on the run-up to the Iraq War, after the Iraq War, I'm not really sure that I am the best person to say, like, here is a strategy for, you know, dealing with this. But I think the answer is that those of us who are journalists, who are people of color, have a responsibility not to shrink from telling the truth simply because, uh, you know, diversity is no longer a marketable idea the way that it was in the you know, Obama administration when people thought the majority of the country was going in one direction and now we see it going in another. There is actually no more important moment than now to bear witness of how people who have been scapegoated by this campaign, who have been, you know, blamed for all the problems in the country, there's no more important moment than now to write about those people with humanity and what they're thinking and feeling. I agree. But here's the here's the issue, because it's not I mean, we we saw how hard it was to get race coverage under the Obama administration. I speak from experience. And now everybody's woke and everybody's writing about race. And now this. Right. So that, like you said, Adam, that the marketability of, of diversity has suddenly gone out the window. And now what I'm hearing is a lot of people saying, well, we need to get, you know, more. Uh, you know, white working class reporters, you know, and we need to really make, you know, our newsrooms in in middle America have been gutted. And all of that is true. Um, I've been a huge advocate for class diversity uh, in newsrooms, which I think is a major reason why we're always accused of being a media elites, because we we tend and I'm not one of them. I'm a public school, you know, working class woman here. But there is a lot of that in our newsrooms. And I think that, you know, are those concerns a going to 
to, I, I don't want to use the word, are they going to trump? Are they going to become more important than diversifying newsrooms for people of color, which has been a huge battle and a very mm -hmm. difficult thing to get done? I doubt that we're going to start seeing diversity at the highest levels. I don't think we're going to start seeing now less than ever, probably people are going to try and make the case for people of color or women, or both, you know, God forbid, we have, I, I tweeted the other day, your newsroom diversity should be intersectional. Um, we know media has a serious diversity problem. And right now, I don't think it's going to get any better. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, everybody, I, this is this is AC. I just want to pop in here with a quick question. Can we turn this around to the consumer end of things, though? Because I, I know so many of our listeners aren't journalists, and I, I wonder about the diversity of their own media diets and what we can expect them to be healthier about going forward and how they can help people do that. I mean, that seems like one way to combat this to me. When you say healthier, can you articulate what you think is unhealthy? I mean, reading, reading, reading more writers of color, reading more mm -hmm. and, and consuming more stuff produced by people of color in, in order to better understand people they don't. I think that that's a, that's so critical, you know, is mm -hmm. making sure that you have more voice. That's, that's the whole reason for having diversity is to make sure you have these voices out there. And we've, we've seen news organizations really trying to make an effort to do that. But I, like I said, I don't know if, if even on the consumer end, this is going to be something that's, that's considered critical anymore, because now the focus is the white working class and middle America and the white identity politics. So if that's the case, are the voices of people of color going to continue to be important? I have to think that something has shifted in the country enough over the past 15, 20 years that there's no going back from an increasingly robust conversation or, or around race and, and <laughs> no pun intended. So I'm, I'm not under the illusion that everything's going to be fine. But I don't know that if it comes to pass that, that a lot of people in positions of power and media organizations start to privilege the concerns or voices of the white working class, that that, I, I'm not sure it's a zero-sum game because I think things have yeah. changed significantly in the way that news is distributed, news and opinion is distributed, and the ability for people of color and other historically marginalized communities to have their voices heard. I don't feel pessimistic about that. I feel pessimistic that that their voices may be drowned out or that they may be targeted. Mm -hmm. I feel like Tanzina and Adam are talking about this as sort of like a whiplash reversal. I don't see it as that because it's not like the Obama years were the diversity years and now we're turning around and we're going the other way. There were all these voices and ideas and opinions of people of color that were suppressed because no one was giving them voice and because the technology wasn't there that has opened up so many of avenues, social media, that people have to get their voice out there outside of the gatekeepers. And so Obama blew that wide open. You didn't have Jim Bowie and Tana Asikos and Adam Sturwer and all these people. Well, the internet in, blew like, that wide open. Right, the, but the internet, but then Obama was part of the internet. Like that, he took advantage of that in part of his election. So he cracked that wide open and then we had this rush of change in this country in the direction of, of people of color, we hoped, doing better. Beneath that, the whole time, it's not like Trump started something new. Beneath that, the whole time was the sleeping giant of all of this white resentment and white anger at this direction of the country that they didn't understand, whether it's economic or cultural or racial or sexist, it's all there. And then now Trump has woken that up, that sleeping giant. <laughs> Obama woke I up a sleeping giant and Trump woke up a sleeping well, giant. And now we've got that, a battle royale. Yeah, I, I, because I don't it's 50 think that, 50. It's I don't a think dead that Trump heat. woke up a sleeping giant. I think the sleeping giant was already awake. I think the sleeping giant has had a fucking. It was cannon. slumbering. It, but it um, wasn't. If you read a lot, I, I actually follow a lot of white nationalists on Twitter just to see what they're up to. Alabama has a whole like network. I follow them to see what's happening. And there is a palpable now we can speak. We've been in our mother's basement. Now we're out. You know, they, yeah, sleeping is the wrong analogy. They weren't asleep, but they were, they did, they felt muzzled because they felt like political correctness, blah, 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 and whatever. They would, you know, mutter and grouse and tell racist jokes to each other, but you didn't have Klan rallies on the mall when Trump was being inaugurated. Now you have, they're coming out of their mother's basement and it's, it's on. I do think you're going to also see this, this happen. I'm going to, I'm going to read you part of a DM I got from a, a reporter who I won't mention, but it's a reporter of color um, who responded to my inquiry about, you know, how people are feeling. I agree with, with, with what you're saying. I think that this is, um, 
what this reporter said is, people are going to push, people being reporters. There will be lots of fuck it, I'm saying it, from media of all colors. People will risk their careers for this. Straight up reporting is always a trouble, is always difficult to pitch these stories, you know. And that's what I was kind of referring to. But will it silence people? No. I want to kind of close out this conversation by asking each of you to respond to a question that I'm going to answer first, which is how how have you been feeling over the past couple of days? And for myself, I felt very unmoored and panicked at times and terrified at times and numb at times and um, just basically completely. I, I, I don't know that I've ever felt so bad and bad is not a word that is really actually <laughs> sums up what I'm feeling in, in my life. I, 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 I feel like I don't, I don't recognize the, the world that I live in. Um, and, and I feel profoundly shaken. So, um, I want to ask that question of all of you. How are you, how are you feeling? How have you been feeling? Emotionally exhausted. I'm just emotionally wiped out. Um, I've, like I mentioned earlier, I've gotten texts and calls and not just, just because of the results, but also because of what I'm seeing with friends and family who are also emotionally distraught um, by this, but I'm just exhausted. Um, I'm glad it's Friday and I'm, I'm ready for the day to just wind down. I'm tired. I am physically exhausted because I didn't sleep at all Tuesday night. I slept four hours Wednesday night and I slept maybe three and a half hours last night just because I couldn't sleep. And then, then my children also wake up at four. So there's that. And I think, and this maybe is a clarification on what I said earlier about whiteness breaking into and Adam having some, some reservations about that. A lot of people have said this on, uh, on Twitter and I've read some stuff about it and it definitely is how I feel. and It's how my wife feels, which is that progressive white people welcome to the party. Cause this is how people of color feel every day. The awareness that, that there's a malignant force out there, that this is not your country. There are a lot of white people walking around today going, this is not my country. And there are a lot of white people going around today saying, yes, I got my country back. That may be a more specific way of articulating the divide that I'm talking about. And if you're a white person on the, this is not my country anymore side, that doesn't mean that you are not racist at all, but you, you have been shattered in a way that you are now going to, you cannot reconcile with Trump or the people who follow him. So you are going to look to the other side of the aisle, which is urban people of color coalitions and, and try and figure out how to make a country there. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, you have white people who think this is my country and, you know, woohoo. And since Wednesday, I've definitely felt walking around that I live in a different country now. And people who lived in Barcelona for the three years of the Spanish civil war, or people who lived in, Paris during the Nazi occupation, these sort of things. And you sort of think about it abstractly in history because, of course, we weren't there and we treat it in the history books. But, of course, people went to the grocery store. People watched movies. People made breakfast with Nazis occupying their city, with Franco's forces shelling them and bombing them from above. And I think a lot of people are going to feel like that for the next four years, which is that, yeah, you get up, you make your breakfast, you go to work, but the country you thought was yours is not. And of course, a lot of people of color feel that way every day um, and feel that this, this country does not truly welcome them and is not truly giving them citizenship. Well, this humanity. isn't, the, I, mean, I mean, as a person of color, and I'll speak only for myself, I, I, I don't think that like what people of color are feeling this week is just more of the same of what they were feeling before. It's just that, just that white people are now feeling it more. I think that there is something much more profound and, and much more deeply frightening and existentially threatening has come to the fore. But Adam, what about you? Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm sort of reluctant to get personal. It's been very difficult to talk to a lot of my friends. All my friends who are people of color, who are Muslims, are absolutely distraught. They're afraid for themselves. They're afraid from their families. Some of them have already been involved in racist encounters. Um, a cousin of mine, a random white lady, told her, told him to leave the country you know, I just think, like, there is a substantial amount of mental anguish that is out there right now um, that wouldn't have been there if, you know, a typical Republican had won, but mm -hmm. is there precisely because this man ran a campaign blaming the country's problems on groups of people who now rightfully fear what their fate will be. And that is very hard to deal with, especially, you know, when those people are people you love. 
I'm going to move on to recommendations. I mean, I don't know that anyone here has any recommendations. It seems it seems weird for us to be talking about. Oh, <laughs> so I'm going to suggest that the recommendations that we that we give today to the listeners are anchored around what what happened this week, whether it's a piece that you read or a, or a clip from a, a television show or an interview that you saw or something you heard on the radio or on a podcast. Is there something you think that people um, that our listeners need to to read or or listen to um, that you can recommend for them. I read a piece. I think it was in Roll Call. Uh, the writer had been. He was from the Midwest, and he's now living in the media elite, you know, coastal world. And he basically said, you know, there's this whole narrative about us in the coast having to understand people in the Midwest, and that we're the ones that are living in the bubble. When in fact. It's the other way around. There's a lot more isolation happening in in a lot of these Midwestern cities and communities. And in fact, the onus is also on those communities to understand that the United States is changing. We are becoming more diverse. And it's also up to those communities to do some soul searching and some outreach. And I thought that was a, a really poignant piece. And also hug somebody this weekend. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. Tanner. Turn it off. I say that I have currently like 40 tabs open in <laughs> Google Chrome because I just, I, I see another link. Oh, I got to read that analysis. Oh, I got to read that history. I got to read that because, but I have now freedom is a wonderful internet blocker program for your computer. You can get a lifetime subscription for $50. And I currently have it set to shut off all social. I'm not on Facebook anymore, so I, I don't even use it, but Twitter is my main crack. And Twitter turns off at five o'clock and it doesn't turn on again till late in the morning. Wow, that's amazing. And that <laughs> is, you know, after five o'clock, just turn it off, talk to my wife, watch a TV show uh, so that I, can, that I can try and get to bed. I haven't been successful in actually sleeping. But, and the other thing, this is a trick my wife and I came up with for our kids, but it also works in this case, but only if you're married or you have someone that you really love and trust, which is I took Twitter and Facebook off my phone. She took Facebook off of her phone. And on the weekends, it started being not wanting to be hooked on the phone around our kids, but we swap phones because you do not have the compulsion psychologically to check someone else's phone because it doesn't mm-hmm. have your email, doesn't have your Twitter, it doesn't have all the things, the little like, uh, you know, rat pellet things that you got to check. So I have my wife's phone, I can check Google Maps, I can make an emergency phone call, but I don't check it. It's just in my pocket. The compulsion to check it goes away when you have someone else's phone. That's a neat trick. So my advice, as it's something to read or something to consume, just cool it. Stop consuming. Adam. I have stepped away from Twitter. There's only so much, so many gloating Nazi bots I can really take at a given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I don't think it's a good place to be right now. Anyway, mm-hmm. my recommendation would be to read my colleague Van Newkirk's essay, this is who we are, which is on the Atlantic website. It's very personal. It's very beautiful. Van is a very talented writer, and I would highly recommend reading it. It's about how the election revealed the true character of the country in some very stark ways. All right, listeners, that is all for today. Our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating compulsively listenable podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. And we've also got a phone number, so give us a call. It's 612-888-RACE. If you'd like to email us or send a voice memo, the address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race. In the meantime, thanks so much for being here and joining our national conversation about conversations about race. I'm Anna Holmes.